There you go. Let me just say, if it could go wrong this morning, it has gone wrong. And let me just tell you, I, just, I don't think Satan really wants this service to take place. Because it's going to glorify and honor Jesus. And so uh, something's up with my mic. It has worked intermittently this morning. I can't get it to come on, so I'm taking the batteries out. This is the equivalent of unplugging and rebooting. We're going to see if this works. How about... I forgot to warn you there's going to be a loud noise. If you didn't hear me, children ages 5 through 5th grade can be dismissed now uh, for Children's Church. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew... Matthew, we're going to look at the last verse of chapter 16 and then get into verse 17, or chapter 17, the first few verses. I'm preaching through the last half of Matthew this summer. And so we find ourselves at the story of the transfiguration of Christ. And I've just been overwhelmed this week thinking about catching a glimpse of the glory of God. A lot of years ago, I spoke two years in a row for a camp out in Washington State, and my second year there, I had people ask me, have you gone to see Mount St. Helens? And I said, well, I mean, I've seen it, you know, driving by. You can see it for like miles away. But I said, they said, no, have you not driven up there? And I said, no. And they looked at me like I'd committed a sin to be that close. So I said, well, okay, I'll go see Mount St. Helens. So me and the guy that was leading worship and one of our other guys, we got in a car and drove over to Mount St. Helens. I remember driving up and you start reading some of the history about Mount St. Helens. This happened like now, over 35 years ago. At this time, it was probably 20 years that it, that it happened. And you notice on the mountain, there's trees regrowing where they had been totally destroyed. Everything off this mountain was gone in 1980. And there was a guy named Harry Truman, not the president. Another guy just happened to be the same name, Harry Truman. And they had gone to Harry Truman and said, we know something's about to happen. We don't know when it's going to happen, but this mountain's about to blow. You need to get off the mountain. Well, he was an older gentleman, and he said, I've lived here all my life. I'm not going anywhere. Well, after Mount St. Helen blew, they never saw him again. Where he lived was covered up with lava and downed trees and all those kind of things. So we drive up there, and it's impressive. But you go into this observatory, and they show you this film about Mount St. Helens. And it was impressive. It was awesome. But what was the most awesome was when they peeled back the curtains. And for the first time, you see into the crater of Mount St. Helens. Probably a hundred people in the room. And of the hundred people in the room, most of them couldn't say anything. The ones who did say something was probably something along the lines of, Wow. Or just gasped of breath. It was awesome. That pales in comparison to what we're going to look at this morning. But I hope the same thing happens. I hope this morning the curtain goes back just a little bit. And we catch a glimpse. Just to give you the context of the passage. Jesus has been teaching up to this point. He's been teaching the multitudes. From about chapter 4 of Matthew until about chapter 16... He's been teaching the multitudes. He's been healing people. He's fed 5,000. He's fed 4,000. He's walked on water. He's calmed the storm. Done incredible things. But in chapter 16, you start seeing a turn inward, really just to focus on his 12 disciples. And he's also turning and looking towards Jerusalem. And he's trying to prepare 
the disciples for Jerusalem. Last week we looked at the fact that he tells his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem. They heard that. I must be killed. They heard that. They didn't hear the next thing. And be raised on the third day. They didn't hear that. All they heard was, we're heading to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. And that's when Peter speaks up. No, no, we're not doing it that way. And Jesus says to him, unless you're willing to deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me, you, you really can't follow me. And then you get to verse 28. And let me read the passage. Verse 28 and then following into chapter 17. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, His brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. So after this teaching to the twelve in particular, right before they're heading from the district of Caesarea Philippi region, he heads over to a mountain. But before he goes, he says, Let me tell you something, guys. Some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, scholars debate over what event he's talking about. He's not talking about the second coming, because these guys have tasted death. He's either, most scholars believe, he's either talking about the resurrection, or he's talking about the transfiguration that was about to happen. And you say, well, which is it? Well, in some sense, it's both, because they're going to see this. But I think if he was talking about only the resurrection, he wouldn't have said some of you. He would have said all but one of you or most of you because they were all, except for Judas, was going to experience the resurrection. But he knew coming up, he's just told them, in fact, the verse before this, he said, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. He's saying that's going to happen at a future event. Jesus is coming not as a baby in a feeding trough, not as a suffering, suffering servant. Jesus is coming back in glory with the angels. That's what we look forward to. But he said, listen, guys, some of you are going to see the beginning of that. And I think he's talking about the transfiguration because when he says that, he's saying in six days that's going to take place. Now, put yourself in the disciples' perspective. They have just heard the news that they're heading to Jerusalem. In the disciples' mind, they're basically thinking this three-year ministry has been a failure. Yes, some people have gotten healed. We've picked up a few followers along the way. He's fed some people. They're already ready to crown him king, and he keeps talking about dying. So they're skeptical. 
And also they're thinking, not only is he going to die, he's asking us to go with him. We're going to die when we get to Jerusalem. He's facing imminent death and he has commanded us to willingly accept the same. So then six days later, six days later they go to a mountain nearby and he takes Peter, James, and John with him. Why those three and why not all twelve? Well, he has constantly said, and he'll even say after the transfiguration, don't, don't tell anybody about this. The crowd was so ready to crown him. Every time he fed the 4,000, 5,000, he would get in a boat and leave. I mean, he'd have to walk away because he knew the disciples and all this crowd that he'd been following was ready to crown him right then, to take him by force and make him king. And so Jesus takes the three. These have kind of become the intimate three that were closer to Jesus than others. He takes them with him into the garden when he's praying before the arrest. They had become kind of the unofficial spokesman for the disciples. And so he takes those three. And what's about to happen, folks, it did not take Jesus going to a mountain to receive glory. He already had it. In fact, Jesus had given up all that glory in heaven to come to earth, Philippians chapter 2. So it wasn't that he was about to be endued with glory. It was simply that for a moment they were going to peel back just a little bit and show the glory. Six days later, he, take, he took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, and he was transfigured. In fact, it's the Greek word that we get the word metamorphosis from. He was changed from one form into another. He was transformed, transfigured. And Peter, James, and John saw, the best way that could describe it is his face shone like the sun. The glory emanating, coming out of Christ was not a reflection of something else. It was coming out of Him. And it said His face, the best I could describe, it would be like staring at the sun, which I don't recommend you doing. But that's what they experienced. The best way they could describe it is His face got so bright, it was like the sun. And His garments were as white as light. What was happening? His face was shining so brightly that it illuminated his garments. And the best I could say is it looked like his, his garments lit up. Now, Peter, James, and John, they're seeing something they'd never experienced before. They'd never seen anything like this before. You and I haven't either. And then they see Moses and Elijah. They appeared. And they're talking with Jesus. We have to look at Luke's account of this. This account occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Luke's account it says, And behold, two men were talking with them, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Why Moses? Why Elijah? Moses was the great law giver. Elijah was a prophet, the great law defender. And it was as if they were having this meeting with Jesus to simply say, Hey, you're about to head to Jerusalem. And be crucified and depart. 
you've accomplished the purpose that we were talking about in the Old Testament. Moses gave the law, Elijah defended it, Jesus fulfilled it. Then let's look at the response because this is amazing. How would you have responded if you'd been there? Well, let's look at Peter. Peter was never one slow to speak his mind. Most of the time, he opens his mouth to put both of his sandals in it. Now, earlier in the chapter, he had confessed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And Jesus commended him for that. But here he is again. He's also been the one that said, no, 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 no. We're, we're not doing this going and dying thing. So when he sees this, he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. And I think Peter's already thinking, why would we go to Jerusalem if we could just hang out on this mountain? And on this mountain, we have Moses and Elijah and Jesus. But Peter wants to stay there. Bottom line is, Peter wanted what he wanted, when he wanted it, and not what the plan was. And so he says, hey, if you wish, I mean, I can take care of this. I can build three tabernacles, one for you and your two friends. What's Peter thinking? Let's just stay here. Wouldn't that have been glorious? Peter, you missed the point. The reason Moses and Elijah are there, the reason this is the glory of God revealed is because the purpose of God is happening. And you're trying to do something a little different. I'll make three tabernacles for you. The other thing he missed is, Peter, don't put Moses and Elijah on the same category with Jesus. In fact, in Luke's gospel, as Peter sees Moses and Elijah, they speak, they're turning to walk away. They're leaving. He's going to be left with Jesus. But can I say the scary thing? The human response to worship often is control. The human response to God in worship too often is centered on us. Let me just ask you sometimes, just listen to some of the words of songs we sing at times, even in worship. Sometimes they're way too man-focused and way too little God-focused. That's why I appreciate what the guys have led us in this morning. My prayer has been that we just are led into the throne room of God. And as we get there, the response would be to worship. It bothers me that some people perform worship. And they do it really well. But it's a performance. It's not an invitation to join them. They're just performing worship. That's, that's scary. What is the proper response? While he was speaking. I love this. So Peter, Peter's coming. I got an idea. While he's speaking, God the Father shows up and interrupts Peter. Thank you, God. Who knows what else Peter might have said. While he was speaking, a bright cloud. We've seen that throughout the Old Testament. The children of Israel were led by a cloud by day, a fire by night. We've recognized already that represents the presence of God. So while Peter's speaking, while the glory of God is radiating on this mountain, a bright cloud shows up. And it overshadowed them. Literally, it enveloped and engulfed them in it. And a voice spoke and said three things. This is my beloved son. 
It declared a relationship not just of divine nature, but of divine love. This is my beloved son. This is the son that I love. That's what God the Father said. And then he says, I am well pleased. The Father has declared his approval of everything the son had done, said. He said, I approve of it. In fact, these are almost exact words that the Father had said at the baptism of Christ. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We've heard it before. And then he says, listen to him. He's not just saying it to Peter. He's saying, listen, when Jesus speaks, listen. When he tells you he must go to Jerusalem, listen to him. When he tells you he's going to be raised on the third day, believe him. When he tells you to take up your cross and follow him, do it. And when he tells you he's coming again in glory, believe it and live accordingly. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down. What else do you do when you're in the presence of God? When sinful man recognizes I'm a sinful man and I'm in the presence of God, what did Adam and Eve do? When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, what did they do? They went and hid from God as if that's a smart idea. I think we'll play hide-and-seek from the all-knowing God. When Isaiah was in the throne room of heaven and he saw the glory of God, you remember what he said? Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. Peter, James, and John fall on the ground. And I, I think the word could be translated reverence or awe, but I think a lot of it was just fear. Why? Because they recognized who they were in light of who he is. They're terrified. And then Jesus comes to them. And I love this about Jesus. Jesus, who has been radiating glory. He's having a high moment of his own. First thing he says and does is tenderness and grace toward these three men. He says, he touches them. He says, get up and do not be afraid. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus alone. So these three men have caught a glimpse of the glory of God. And the amazing thing is, Peter, James, and John, Peter's going to write about this later. John's going to write about this later. In fact, it amazes me that in his gospel, John really doesn't make a big deal about it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record it, give a little nuances to it, but John really doesn't talk about it. Let me close with just a few verses that these men wrote later in ministry. In 2 Peter chapter 1, 17 and 18, Peter, talking about this very event, says, For when he received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance as this was made by him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. 2 Corinthians, Paul wasn't there, but I want you to hear this. 
But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And then John does write this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. That's John, one of the three, said we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. Folks, that's just a glimpse of the glory of God. My question this morning, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to the supernatural, powerful glory of God? One way, is that you recognize it and honor it. I think we need to back up and do what the Father said. Hey, listen to Him. When He tells you He's got to go to Jerusalem, when He tells you He's got to die, when He tells you He's going to rise on the third day, and when He tells you He's coming again, believe it and live like it. But I want to pray, and then I want us to close this way. I'm going to ask the guys to come up and just close us in worship. And you can assume the posture of worship that you want to. This is about God. If you want to raise your hands, you raise your hand. We're not doing this for man's applause. We're doing it to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. See, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, it's going to be in the fullness of glory. In fact, it will be so glorious. Philippians chapter 2 says that every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, as we close this morning, may we do it acknowledging that you are God and you are good and you are worthy of all praise. You tell us in your word that you're enthroned upon the praises of your people, Psalms 22. But God, you're already there. You're on the throne. May we just acknowledge that and respond to that as humans, feebly and frailly, and yet still as people who catch a glimpse and respond to the glimpse. In Jesus' name.